I don't know uh, about you, but, well, actually I do. At some point in time, uh, everybody wrestles with doubt in their lives. Doubt comes in a variety of forms, and, and this morning it's really not my aim to cover all the kinds of doubt and all the forms of doubt, but as we are looking at this passage in Luke, we see a, an example of, uh, of a faithful follower of Christ, you might even say a wholehearted followers of Christ, really two of them, in Elizabeth and Zechariah. And they are wrestling with great doubt. Many of us have heard the name C.S. Lewis. Um, he's written many wonderful books, um, uh, you know, a couple of them, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, and that whole series. And is just an incredible author with a, an incredible mind. And, but before he was a Christian, C.S. Lewis, uh, you may know, was an atheist. And C.S. Lewis says, uh, says this. He uses this analogy of uh, a fifth columnist. Now, when I use that word in here, you'll hear it. So uh, a fifth columnist is not really a word we use much today, but, but it refers to, if you think of a, a war, you've got two sides of a war, and sometimes in the midst of either learning something or in the midst of uh, an intense situation, our minds get really cloudy. Uh, and, and a fifth columnist is fighting for something. And, and, and even as you're fighting for something, you can kind of start to doubt what you're fighting for at times. You know, you, 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 and so a fifth columnist is someone who is engaged in a battle, but kind of in his mind starts almost, you know, pulling, whether he's pulling for the other side, but at least starts sort of empathizing with the other side. In that sense. So C.S. Lewis uses this term as it relates to our souls. And so he says, just as the Christian has his moments when the clamor of this invisible and audible world, the spiritual world, is so persistent, and the whisper of the spiritual world so faint that faith and reason can hardly stick to their guns. So, as I well remember, remember speaking about his atheism, the atheist too has his moments of shuddering misgiving, of an all but irresistible suspicion that old tales may after all be true, and that someone from outside may at any moment break into his neat, explicable, mechanical universe. In other words, an atheist or an unbeliever who, re who relies solely on reason, we're talking about reason without faith, which also requires faith, but that's another conversation. What he's saying is those who rely on their perception of their reason, uh, their, their cognitive understanding of the, the world around them, even at some point we begin to doubt too, as he himself did. And so he continues, believe in God and you will have to face ours when it seems so obvious that this material world is the only reality. So now he's saying, as a Christian, I've experienced the same, a similar kind of thing. When I was an atheist, I was confident in my beliefs, but I also started to have some doubts. And two, as a Christian, one who is born again of God and is trusting in Jesus for, alone for the forgiveness of his sins, I've also experienced doubt. And he says, disbelieve him and in, in, in God, and you must face ours when this material world seems to shout at you that it is not all. 
No conviction, whether religious or irreligious, will of itself end once and for all this fifth columnist in our soul. In other words, as a believer is walking in faith and striving in faith, sometimes the the circumstances of the world press in so much that even we of faith begin to question things. We begin to doubt. And he says, only the practice of faith resulting in daily prayer and corporate worship the habit of faith will gradually become a, uh, become a habit. I, I, I butchered this last statement, so I'm going to read this last sentence. <laughs> Only the practice of faith resulting in the habit of faith will gradually do that. In other words, make you stronger and stronger and stronger. Spiritual disciplines need to become habits in a good sense of the word. And so that's what he's pointing out. He's pointing out that conviction obtained through reason alone won't sustain you in the spiritual battle. You've got to have faith. You've got to have faith. In other words, no one comes to Christ, no one comes to salvation through reason alone. But on the other side, he says you must have faith and faith has to be practiced until it's a habit. So this is where daily prayer and the habit of corporate worship are vital to us because there are, you know, spiritual forces in this world system which are constantly at work and they're trying to whittle away at our convictions. So we might, you might remember from last week, Luke 1, 6, where we see that uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth were both righteous before God. They were walking blamelessly in all of the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They didn't have this uh, uh, performance-only righteousness. They deeply loved God. They deeply believed that what God was said was true, and they sought to walk in His ways. They sought to honor the Lord and be faithful to the Lord. Uh, the, the, the passage in verse 6 of chapter 1 says, they walked in all the commandments of the Lord. And then they're described as blameless. That seems to be the emphasis of that verse. They're blameless. And so this morning we're going to see there's a pattern that Christians experience. And it goes something like this. Faith, reason, doubt, discipline, hope, praise. If you're a note taker, I'll say it slower. Faith, reason, doubt, discipline, hope, and praise. It's not always in this exact order. In fact, it's usually not in this exact order. And it doesn't follow in any sort of a linear fashion. In other words, some people come to Christ through faith quickly, and then they build some of the reason as they grow or as they begin to understand more. Uh, Some people start with reason, and the Lord eventually pricks their heart so that what is reason turns to faith. Because ultimately we're resting in Christ through faith alone. And then you've got these other other four, doubt, discipline, hope, and praise. It doesn't always go in a straight line. In fact, it doesn't even look like a, a nice line chart, right? It often looks something like this. I practiced that like for a long time. Y'all were just silent, offended. 
So Zechariah and Elizabeth, they've, they've got this faith, they're blameless before the Lord, but along the way, they've got this disappointment. They've been praying for a child. We spent a lot of time on that last week, so we'll just mention it this morning. They're, they're praying for a child, and along the way, this disappointment becomes what is center in their focus. And I've been there, faced discouragement. One discouragement after another, until you finally find yourself sort of on your heels in your spiritual walk with the Lord. You're sort of on your heels and you resign yourself. You can resign yourself to a life of living without hope in the world. This doesn't mean that you've, you've turned your back on the Lord. It doesn't mean that you're not still trusting the Lord for salvation. But it does mean that at times... This is why Paul said, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. And so, so we've got to fix our eyes. It, your eyes just don't wander to spiritual realities. Your eyes don't wander to what's, uh, what the invisible realities are. Right? We, we need to fix our eyes, our hearts, and our minds on these eternal truths through Scripture and helping one another do that in relationship uh, with one another. Maybe even as you seek to impact other people, you think, you know, this one, maybe it's this aspect of a ministry that you, you have, right? It's life experience of a pastor talking. Maybe there's something in an aspect of ministry or something you're working toward and it just doesn't seem to be clicking. You're not sure why. Or maybe it's a relationship. It's a good relationship. It's a fine relationship. But it seems like things just aren't, aren't clicking in the sense that you, you desire them to. And, and in the end, what you're desiring is not necessarily in and of itself wrong. Maybe you have a desire like Elizabeth and Zechariah. They desired a son. That's not a wrong desire. It's a good desire. And so maybe Zechariah and Elizabeth sort of resign themselves to, you know what? I know the spiritual truths. I know God's sovereign. I know that I don't deserve salvation. I know that he has made a way for me to be able to be saved. Zechariah would be saying, I know that he will send the Messiah, right? So we look back and we say, I know that I'm trusting in the shed blood of Jesus alone on the cross for my salvation. They wouldn't have said that that way. They would have said, we, we hope in God and we have faith in God, knowing, believing confidently that he will send the Messiah, the promised one. And even as God is at work in their life, in, in using them to be a great part of this plan, they couldn't see it. So we're tempted with this fifth columnist syndrome in our own soul to say, yeah, I know, but just, is it worth it? Where are you at in that this morning? Are you in a place where you're discouraged and you feel like the, you've been going through the motions? I'm not challenging your salvation, but you go through the motions and it just doesn't it just doesn't seem like it's working the way you think it ought to work or the way that 
God ought to be working in your life or blessings that you think God ought to be bringing in your life are not coming in the way that you think that they should. And you're not trying to be greedy or super selfish, but you find that your hearts are just inclined that direction. You say Merry Christmas a hundred times this week. Probably 50 today here at church, tonight, another 50, whatever the case might be. You know, if you take something as small as a penny, a coin, and you take it and you hold it up, and if you look, you look at the sun, which you're not supposed to do for very long, but if you do, or you look in that direction, you say, I'm going to look at the sun, and you hold this penny right in front of your eye, something as small as a penny or a dime, even smaller, I think, can block out the magnificence and the radiance of the sun. Something as small as a dime can block the sun. Similarly, friends, brothers and sisters, a circumstance that is small. Don't hear me say unimportant. Don't hear me say invaluable or unvaluable. Worthless. None of that. A legitimate struggle, a legitimate desire that's unfulfilled in perspective is as small as a like a dime or a penny. And compared to the magnanimous brilliance of the Lord and his faithfulness and his faithful plan and how he works in the lives of people, that situation can be held up to your eye and as small as it is can block all of the brilliance that's out there. All of the brilliance that God intends for you to see and to know and to experience in him. And so here we see these things, faith and reason and doubt, discipline, hope, and praise. We see each of these in Zechariah's life, right? They've walked with the Lord, so there's faith. And, and reason is at work in their life. They, they, they have reasoned in their minds. They've got these wonderful brains that God has given them. And they have studied the scriptures. They know the scriptures. Uh, they might have even had Daniel and seen God's faithful working in Daniel's life and heard that story, and they believe God's faithful. Let's trust in the Lord. In fact, we trust in him so much, we're going to be faithful in the things that God has called to, the daily disciplines. We're going to pray. And the angel says to them, God has heard your prayers. And so their their application, uh, their practice of faith is working. But they're still struggling with one thing that is unanswered. And it's become so big to them. Maybe they're just going through life in sort of a ho-hum kind of a way. God's the faithful God who keeps his promises. And, and Zechariah knows this full well. So the angel Gabriel comes and talks with him. And, and, uh, and in what Gabriel says, he says that you will call your son's name John. Now hang on to that. Just let that sit there, right? One uh, apologetist, apolo- apologetics guy Gregory Kukul talks about like a pebble in your shoe. It's like something about the Lord that's true. You just can't quite, quite uh, stop thinking about, you know, your son's name is going to be John. So just let that be a pebble in your shoe this morning as we keep going. Read with me in uh, Luke 1, 14 through 17. Luke 1, 14 through 17, which uh, helps us with our context here this morning. So He says, and you, Zechariah, will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, 
Now he's talking about John the Baptist here. I know it's Christmas Eve, and so we're thinking Jesus, which is good. But here he's talking about John the Baptist. Many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of the hearts of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit of Elijah and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people for the Lord. Now this is where we pick up this morning. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man, my wife's advanced in years. So, did you hear what he's saying there? Now, I'm going to kind of conceptualize this. Uh, I, I know God's sovereign, angel. He doesn't know his name yet. I, I know God's sovereign. I know God's in control. I know that God has all the power and God could give me whatever blessings he would wish to give me. But for some reason, unbeknownst to me, God hasn't given me the one thing that I a faithful man of God, one who loves the Lord. I don't mean to say that he was propping himself up. I don't want to communicate the wrong idea. But one who deeply loves the Lord, and he won't give us this one thing. And I get it. He's God. And so it's okay. But do you see there's a difference between when we say, the Lord is sovereign, and he's the one who decides, and that's okay, and that's good, and I trust in him, and you're leaning into the Lord in that, versus... A posture that says, I, I know the truths. You can hear it in the tone. I, I know God's sovereign. I know God could, but he isn't. And you exhale and the shoulders kind of drop. Now, what I'm pointing out this morning is that maybe you're there this morning. But we have all been there in one way or another. I know God could, but he's not. And so he says, you know, so angel, you know, if I was talking to him, I'd say like, you know, so man, but it was an angel. So we're not going to call him man. So angel, I hear you and I want to believe you. I really do. But honestly, do you know how old Elizabeth and I are? Like maybe you just were in a hurry to obey God and get here and give us this message. And you forgot to do the math along the way. I mean, we're in our eighties. Come on. It's not happening. Maybe you, got, maybe you got the wrong address and you're supposed to give this message to somebody else, right? Now, there's like a little bit of artistic embellishment going on here, I realize that. But what I want to point out is that doubt flows from a misplaced, lesser love in our hearts. When we doubt, there's a misplaced love or a lesser love in our heart that has become more prominent than it ought to be. It has too high of a priority in our affections, the things that we love and the things that we desire. That doesn't mean that the thing you love or desire is in and of itself wrong. So this isn't bashing you like, you shouldn't love that, you shouldn't love that. There are some things that we should not love that we do. But that's not this. This is when you desire good things, but they occupy too high of a place, too prominent of a place in your affections. And so Zechariah asks for, for, for proof. That's what reveals his doubt. Right? He says to the angel, How will I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife's advanced in years. Right? John Calvin says, um, he says really well, he talks about the idea that um, the difference wasn't in the words spoken, because 
Abraham said the similar thing, and Mary said the same thing. Almost the same words. Mary said, how can this be? Mary had faith, but was super confused. She's like, this is awesome. I mean, I don't know how this is going to happen, but praise God. Get up early, Abram, go. I'll make you the father of many nations. You're going to sacrifice your son, your only son. What? I'm actually conflating two stories right now. Abram believed that God would give them a son, and his wife laughed like, I'm old too. No, I don't think so. It's a lot, there's, right? So you see the difference between the, the faith of Abram and the lack of faith with Sarai, his wife. And here, um, Zechariah lacks faith in saying, well, how will I know this is going to be true? To paraphrase it. And so Calvin points out, it's not a difference in the words spoken, but in the hearts of each person, right? He says, look, we know God is free to give blessing to one person and to punish another person as he sees fit. But that's not what's going on in Zechariah's heart here. What's going on is that God knew Zechariah's heart. God knows the hearts of men. And he knew that in Zechariah's heart, there was great doubt. And so Gabriel answers him, how shall you know? I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and God sent me to speak to you to bring you this good news. I mean, honestly, is there anything else that you need? In the holy place of God, than an angel who appears out of nowhere, striking you with fear to believe that what I'm telling you is from God, who you know is true. So what happens is our our sinful hearts make us all prone to limit God by human potential. If you think about the disciples, they go to a wedding and and, uh, they're about out of uh, of wine. And so Mary tells Jesus to make, you know, if she would make the wine. Jesus makes the wine, uh, or I'm sorry, takes the water and turns it into wine, right? Uh, The disciples, when they were about ready to feed the 5,000, remember this? John 6, 5 and 6, lifting up his eyes and then seeing a large crowd was coming toward him. Jesus says to Philip, he says, where where, where are we going to buy bread so that all these people can eat? And Jesus says this to test him. Now, we talk often enough about, and, he, and, and James tells us, God doesn't tempt us to sin. But he does test us to reveal or to see what is in our hearts. And anytime God says, hey, I'm doing this to test you, it's not because he doesn't know. You ever heard the old adage, don't ask a question you don't already know the answer to? you're in a debate with somebody, you're discussing something with one of your children, you're trying to find out something that is true, right? Don't ask a question if you don't already know the answer, right? The Lord knows the answer. God is testing the disciples here. And Philip says, I mean, even 200 denarii wouldn't be enough for all these people. They didn't have 200 denarii. But he's like, even if we had it, Lord, I mean, that's still not going to be enough. I don't know what's happening here. God, Philip is limiting 
God, Jesus, to work through human potential. Brothers and sisters, you and I have page after page after page after page after chapter after chapter after book after book after book after personal testimony after personal testimony after personal testimony of examples of God's faithfulness to his promises, his plans, his purposes, and his people. God is faithful. The challenge is that we don't often do the work to go read in the scriptures to see example after example of the God's faithfulness. We need to put in the work. We need to put in the effort to do that, right? Faith is a reasoned faith. Faith in the Lord is not blind faith. Faith is not, it's not, it's not a leap in the dark. And so with our minds and our hearts, uh, we can see over and over again that God has proven himself. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. And so the source of our doubts faith, reason, doubt. The source of our doubts isn't lack of evidence. It's not lack of reason. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. But our misplaced lesser loves get in the way of our faith. So God, our perfect father, disciplines those he loves for their good. Like, Pastor, it's Christmas Eve and you're talking about discipline? That's right. Yeah. You know, we think about the beauty of Christ coming. Christ came, was given, right? He wasn't created at Christmas. He was already existent, but he came through Mary. And he came to live life perfectly and to fulfill everything that you and I could never fulfill perfectly. And so as he did that, he, he, he grew up in wisdom, he grew in stature, and he obeyed the Father in everything. And in that, he developed discipline, like a human developed discipline. Our father disciplines, a different use of the word, disciplines those he loves for our good. He says here, the angel says, behold. It's like, look, you're going to be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words. You hear that? Because, what's the reason? Why are you disciplining me? Because you didn't believe my words. I'm an angel. God sent me to you and you don't believe. Your doubt is bringing discipline. And he says, these, these words of mine, which will be fulfilled in their time. So he disciplined Zechariah out of love. The purpose of discipline is to bring about faith. Have you ever had these conversations, parents, or maybe grandparents with, with your children and you're disciplining them? And I want to just, it's a little, a little aside. I would encourage you to use the word discipline rather than the word punishment. Punishment means to bring about pain, either in retribution or payback, or for no apparent end. Discipline. Discipline is training. Discipline is training so that a person knows what are the right things to believe and what are the right ways to live. And so we discipline so that people know that what we're doing is wrong. It's incorrect. But if a parent is disciplining their child, it is out of great love for the well-being and the growth of their child. And so Hebrews 12.10 tells us, uh, 
Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. In other words, nobody gets it right all the time. But God disciplines us for our good. That, you hear that purpose statement? That, in order that we may share in his holiness. One of my favorite examples of this is in Deuteronomy chapter 8. You've heard me uh, talk about it before, but I'll I'll flip back there and, and read there for a moment. Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 3. We'll have it on the screen, but just sort of close your eyes and almost just listen to this. The whole commandment, I, the Lord, command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply... To hear that God's commandments are connected to our blessing. Our obedience to God, what God commands is connected to blessing from the Lord. That you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land the Lord swore to give your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your hearts, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Again, God's testing us to know what's in our hearts. It's not for his benefit. It's for our benefit. Verse three, and he humbled you and he let you hunger and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. He's saying you were not seeing by human means how God provided for you. Food is fallen from the sky. Nobody knew what was going on. And the Lord said, just take enough for today. Just take enough for today. This is supernatural provision. So that you might know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. A few verses later, he's promising them as they're getting ready to go, uh, preparing for the promised land. He says, take care. You hear the warning there? It's not all happy, happy, joy, joy. Let me pat you on the hand. Everything is good and everything's going to be fine. No, take care. I'm giving you a warning so that you don't walk out in front of the cars. Stop when you get to the road. Wait, slow down. You're too close. That's out of love and concern. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I commanded to you today. Lest, now listen to this. I want you to hear the hope. We've talked about faith reason, doubt, and hope. Even in discipline, there is great hope. He says, he's, the, the Lord's discipline, he's explaining his discipline to his people. And he says, when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart shall be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. He's saying, be careful not to do this. I'm going to fulfill my promise. You're going to be blessed, but don't forget the Lord. And Zechariah says, or I'm sorry, the angel says to Zechariah here, he says, I got to find it here in my Bible. Um, you will be silent and un- unable to speak until the, these, until the day that these things have taken place because you didn't believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Do you remember that pebble in your shoe I told you to hang on to? What's the child's name going to be? John. Before we ever get here, before Zechariah ever shows his disbelief and his doubt, he's already heard his son's name. You will bear a son and he will be great. His name will be John. Well, wait, how do I know this is going to be true? I'm Gabriel. I came from God. You need anything else? But because you didn't believe, I'm going to discipline you, which is for your good. 
And so now you're, you're not going to be able to speak. Until. What does that until mean? Until. Listen, hey, children, look up here for a minute. I want to encourage you. When your children discipline you, let's say they take away your screens or they, ta- they uh, ground you. Oh, I don't know if people do that anymore. But if they ground you or if they take away your phone or whatever, take away a toy that you love and they say, you're not going to be able to play with this toy for three days. <gasps> do you know what that means? It means on day number four, you're going to be able to play with the toy. So don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. It'll be a hard couple days. Nobody likes discipline. It's painful, Hebrews tells us, but it's for our good, right? And so he's saying, until you're not going to be able to speak, until he's born. And so even in the discipline, I hope you hear hope. Romans 5 tells us hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So here we have this pattern. Faith and reason and doubt and discipline and hope. Hope. And hope, which flows from faith, culminates or finds its end in praise. So I want to encourage you, whatever you're going through right now, whatever your struggle, maybe you are in a season of discipline. And maybe you're sort of upset with the Lord because you don't think it's fair. Does that sound familiar? It's not fair. It's too hard. It's too much. There's still hope. And this is what we cling to, the confidence of things that are not seen, but we know are coming. We know are true. We know are real. And it culminates in praise. I'm going to close with this explanation of what happens as, Jesus, as John is born. As we wrap up our time together. I'm not going to preach it. I'm going to read it. Okay, So it's not like another. It's, it's a lot of verses. <laughs> 23 verses. Uh, what I want you to know is I'm not going to, we're not going into like part two of the sermon here. Okay, But I, I want you to hear Zechariah's praise. Now remember. He's had this lack of faith, and the Lord says, you're going to have this son, his name is John, until he comes, there's hope, you're not going to be able to speak. And then he comes. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy, I'm not going to preach it, had shown great mercy to her, I want to preach it, And and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, John, and, as the, and, they would have called, as they, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no. They must have played some kinds of charades or maybe drew it out in the dirt. And Zechariah's like, John, <laughs> don't get this wrong because I don't know if I'm going to be able to speak just yet. No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is by that name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted the child to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered and they immediately, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing God. The first thing out of his mouth was to praise God. The first thing out of his mouth was to praise God. 
and fear came upon all their neighbors and all the things were talked about through, through all the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts. Mary also, remember, Mary treasured up these things in her hearts when told about the fact that she would be the Messiah's mother. And they would say, what then will this child be for the hand of the Lord was on him? And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and he has raised up a horn of salvation. It's a a word of security, a strength in the servant of the house of David. And as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, God kept his promises, promises from decades ago, generations ago. God kept his promises. He's faithful that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy, unearned favor, mercy, uh, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. There's the desire. I want to serve God. How does the thing that God is withholding from you, preventing you from serving God? Rather, how is your attention, which is fixed on the thing or the person or the situation that God is withholding from you, allowing you to hold off on serving God? If you had it, would you serve God less? that we might serve him without fear in holiness and in righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. What more glorious message is there than that to give? The message of salvation. My son, Zechariah says, gets to prepare people for this. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Listen to this phrase, friend, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah and Elizabeth had faith. There was solid reasoning. But they doubted. And in that doubt, the Lord disciplined them because he's a father who loves his children. But that discipline, even in the discipline, there is hope. In fact, discipline alone is hope. Because Hebrews tells us, if you don't undergo discipline you're not a true child. So even discipline is hope. And that hope, when God's promise is fulfilled, turned to praise. Can you imagine for nine months not being able to speak? You got all that time, right? We've said it to our kids. Now I want you to take five minutes, which seems like an eternity to them, 10 minutes. I want you to look out the window of the beautiful creation. I want you to think about this situation 
and I'm going to come back in about five minutes, ten minutes. I want you to tell me about this situation. There's the hope. I'm coming back. You're not sitting here all day. But I want you to be ready. Nine months he's got. He's like, man, I better get this right. You know what? I don't think he had to really think it through that much. He did, I'm sure, nine months. John is born and he just explodes with praise. Just explodes with praise. Friends, faith is not a leap in the dark. And our hearts, though filled with faith, often are doubting. And so what happens is the Lord sustains Christians by disciplining us. Can we put this phrase up on the screen here? The Lord sustains uh, Christians by, it's okay if it's not there, by disciplining us, which brings hope in the midst of discipline, resulting in our praise of God, both in thanksgiving and as we see the faithfulness of God time and again. You know, one of the reasons we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week, but even if some church, not all churches do this every week, and that's okay, but regularly we celebrate the Lord's Supper because it was the first ordinance that God gave his people in the New Testament to Remember the Lord's Supper until I come. Do you hear the hope? I want you to do this each and every time you meet together. I want you to do this regularly when you meet together until I come. Why would we do this? Why would we remember his gruesome, awful death? Because it reminds us of why he came. So that he could die. So that he could rise again. And he is coming again. So whatever doubt and discouragement you have, I don't mean to tell you here this morning that it's unimportant or that it's minor or you should just get over it. Don't just get over it. Take your doubt to the Lord, confess it, acknowledge it, and repent. And he will show you mercy. He has shown you mercy. And this is a wonderful time to do that. This morning, we're going to, as Aaron and the worship team come to lead us, we're going to take communion together. So we'll still ask you to go. We've got two stations up front, uh, a gluten-free station on this angled wall here, and two stations in the back. As the worship team leads us, we'll invite you to come and, and get your elements, the bread and the juice, and take them back to your seats. And if you would, just hold them and use this as a time of prayer. If there's sin in your life that you know of, uh, you need to, conf- to use this as an opportunity to confess your sin to, as we would say, to do business with God. It's a good thing to repent because God doesn't hold shame over our heads. He says, I know, I know it's why I sent, well, first John the Baptist, and it's why I sent Jesus to pay the penalty for your sins because you could never do it. So come and eat and drink and remember. But we'll hold our elements in our seats and Pastor Aaron will lead us through and we'll eat and drink together as a corporate body this morning. If you are not trusting in Jesus for your sins, we want to just ask you to withhold from taking communion this morning. That's not an unkindness, uh, but it's a way of saying we wouldn't want to give anyone the wrong idea that because you come to church or you do religious things that a person is a Christian, right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And so that invitation is open for you. Even today, you might say, you know what? I've heard enough of this gospel, and I believe. Right now, in the quietness of your hearts, where you sit, or as we're holding communion, you can say, Lord, 
Come into my heart. I repent of trying to be the king of my own heart. Save me. And he will. He will because he's faithful. Uh, I'm going to ask our elders to, to go and be available at, at different communion stations. Feel free to ask any one of us for prayer. Or if you have a question or a concern about something, we'd love to have a minute just to talk with you together today. Or stay after and catch me after the service, okay?